Lounge Room again this week in the wonderful world of all things wine. I'm here with Tam Martinez to talk about Malta, Maltese culture, Maltese wine, and the Maltese Falcon. I'm kidding. We're not talking about the Maltese Falcon. We're just talking about Maltese culture and Maltese wine. We'll start with a little bit of history because as with wine or as with anything, you can't understand anything unless you have a little bit of an appreciation for their history. And Maltese history is intrinsically Catholic. So before we jump into it, quick shout out to Tam. Tam, how are you? I'm good. Thanks, Tom. All good here down in Portugal, just looking after my wines and uh, looking forward to talking about Malta. So you haven't been to Malta? Uh, no, out of the 50 countries, I don't know how I've missed this one. Okay. Well, let's take a couple of minutes and just run through a little bit of history because Maltese history. So I've done a little bit of a chronology here and it kind of starts around 6000 BC with the discovery of these, they call them megalithic temples. So they're UNESCO registered today, very important historically, but they're the oldest surviving freestanding buildings. You can look them up online. They're pretty impressive. They're not quite the pyramids to my mind, but still, you know, considering they're 6,000 years old and they're the oldest freestanding buildings that, no, you know, there were some pretty clever cookies back then. You fast forward to about 700 BC and this mob called the Phoenicians come along. And as we've previously discussed, they had their finger in or their fingers in every single pie. So we've discussed Portuguese wine. The Phoenicians had a huge influence in the spread of culture and wine across the Iberian Peninsula. Surprise, surprise, they were they were quite a seafaring people. So they're very active all over the Mediterranean. Along they come to Malta. And I have no doubt that they would have had quite a bit of influence in the introduction of wine culture to Malta. A little bit of fast forwarding. I think in about 200 BC, this mob called the Romans come along, the Roman Empire. They took control of Malta and controlled Malta for a very, very long time until the Roman Empire split into the the East and West Empires. And then I think it was the, would have been the Eastern Roman Empire, which turned into the Byzantine Empire. I've got that right. It's like knowing your left and right. right. But then along come the Arabians. And it's no secret. It's a constant theme in any country with a rich history and love of wine, Muslims are not wine lovers. So on a couple of occasions, uh, Islamic forces have come up and tried to take over Malta. They haven't been very successful because on the, the first occasion, the Normans came and they, in, the, in that contest with the Arabian forces, uh, they came out on top and that was the introduction of solid Christianity to Malta. And that uh, developed over time. In about 1530, the Knights Hospitaller, 
hospitaller, I think it's pronounced, this medical order, which is a very, very beautiful thing. They operated throughout Europe uh, during the, the crusading ages, very active in the Holy Land. They would care for the poor, the sick, the injured, but they decided to make their, their HQ really uh, on Malta and they became known as the Knights of Malta. And they have a number of fantastic stories associated with them. If you're interested in, you know, acts of valor and surviving against the odds, because while the Knights of Malta occupied Malta, the Ottoman Empire was expanding. Once again, warning for Europe, warning for Christianity, warning, more importantly, for wine. Because as we know, Muslims don't like wine. But the story has a happy ending because these Knights of Malta, they were a tough mob. And after a pretty gruesome, long-lasting siege where they were outnumbered enormously, they won and they pushed back an Islamic invasion. They saved Malta and they saved the Maltese wine culture. That's not the end of Malta's worries. I think in about 1800, the French came along and occupied Malta. A guy named Napoleon had a bit of a fancy for Maltese wines, apparently, and he pretty much controlled the island until the Maltese locals teamed up with Britain, who were at war with Napoleon, and Malta subsequently became a British protectorate. So they were under British uh, influence and protection up until World War II. And once again, Malta found itself in the middle of a fairly gruesome conflict, World War II. We all know what happened there, but the Axis forces laid siege to Malta. So what, what a lot of people, they'd probably understand, but just for the, the benefit of, so they can you know, control trade routes, strategic positions to be able to move troops, etc. So if you're Sicily or if you're Malta, you're not having a fun time if there's a big conflict in the area. Well, World War II comes along, but Malta, you know, they dug their heels in and they survived. And the island was actually awarded the St. George Cross for being able, being able to withstand a, uh, a, a German invasion. So that is pretty much a, uh, a, a bit of a history of Malta up to kind of modern times in 2004, you know, not of, not of interest really for our intents and purposes, but they joined the European Union. And it was at this time that Maltese wine really started to take off because even though Malta has this this rich history of wine going all the way back to the Knights Templar, etc., it was 2004 where the Maltese wine industry started to, to really, really take off. And I might now throw it over to Tam to talk a little bit about the 
the Maltese wine industry? Yes, Tom, I'm, I'm pretty uh, interested in now having found out um, that Malta, being this little archipelago in the heart of the Mediterranean, surrounded by water, is a perfect place to grow grapes. And they've been doing so, like you say, since probably before the Phoenicians. But then you've got this amazing history with the Romans, the Carthaginians, you've got the Christianity, you've got the Byzantines, um, you've even got, you know, the influences of Italy, Sicily, um, Spain and France. They're all bringing their techniques uh, to winemaking. And then you've got the indigenous grapes that are on the island already, which are the white grape, which is the Gigantina, and the red one is the Gelosa. Um, both equally very distinct, very unique, and it's kind of shrouded in a bit of mystery. Uh, had pleasure speaking to one of the chief winemakers at one of the biggest wineries uh, called Delicata. His name is uh, George Mickers, and he spent a good hour sort of bringing me up to date uh, because obviously I've never tried the wines and it's uh, obviously on my list of things to do. But I had a really good chat with uh, Mr. Mickers, who's lived on the island and worked for the company for nearly 30 years. And one of the things that came out of this was that the, the white grape that they produce here and the red actually come, the, the actual grape when it's in the wine, you'd think it would be quite sort of very um, honeyed and, and sweet and because of the climate, it's very warm, it's subtropical there. However, because it's built on lime limestone, um, the vines are rooted in this sort of very cool atmosphere. So the vines do very well, even though the temperature doesn't go below 12. It's a great conductor of um, heat and also um, chilled temperatures. And this comes basically brings out the in the grapes a very crisp, very light wines. Um, I think we're talking about the food there. I mean, with such so many influences that Malta has with different countries around it. The food is is quite vast, and I was thinking about the Gigantina having this, which is also blended with Chardonnay. Uh, gives you this kind of like I don't know if you know what do you get Granny Smith's apples over there? I'm not sure if you do, but we yeah, do. Yeah, we these. do. So so it's a, like a really crisp, very green, um, mineral wine, and you can just imagine eating some beautiful seafood, bit of lobster just thrown on the barbecue, and uh, a nice. Yeah, Gigantina, white wine on a very hot day. And then you've got your red grape, which is slightly thinner skinned, uh, Tenturia grape, so it's quite red inside. Also very light, so probably more like a Sangiovese or a Beaujolais village. Again, perfectly paired with, say, some nice cheeses, sort of like salty cheeses to, to influence, get that influence from that balmy saltiness that you get from being on an island and having, you know, it's only like 17 miles by seven miles. So you've constantly got that wind and it, and the saltiness of the sea sort of permeating the, 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 the vines. Yeah. It's somewhere I'd really like to try. So I'm going to, I'm going to try and get some delivered to myself because, you know, in all the world and all the countries I've been, I've never seen a Maltese wine on, on the shelf. I don't suppose you have, have you Tom? No, I really only became aware of the Maltese wine environment through looking for groovy places that we could talk about for this for this podcast. And I thought, oh, you know, Sicily does it. I bet you Malta does it. 
and then looked into it and went, oh, how, how groovy is that? Malta has a thriving little wine industry. But go, going back from a bit of a historical perspective, just, just for the note, Tam, our connection is awesome. So let's, this is terrific. I can hear you perfectly. You can hear me. Just for the listeners, if they can hear this, this is the best net connection we've had. <laughs> let's run with it. Sorry, tangent. Going back historically. So I spoke about in about 2004, Malta entering the European Union. And this kind of coincided with this renaissance in the Maltese wine industry environment, because up until then, even though they've got this really rich history of wine from the Knights of Malta, etc., there's a lot of French influence. We know Napoleon liked his Maltese wine. Something happened. And up in that, that whole modern time from, I'd, I'd say, the 1900s, most of the grape production in Malta was actually for table grapes. And anything that was left over, you know, they, they threw in a vat and fermented it um, and used that to make wine. And that doesn't create for really a, a thriving, flourishing wine industry. It's all a little, maybe a little bit too rustic. But, you know, the, the early 2000s, so there's been a lot of investment into Maltese wine. But interesting, your comments, my, my understanding is, and I think you've mentioned it previously, they like to keep their uh, the fruits of their labour relatively domestic, especially their endemic varietals. That's right. Um, I, I do think, though, in order to make a good wine, you can make it obviously from their indigenous, but they've had such success with uh, using sort of the Cabernet Sauvignon, the Syrahs, the Chardonnays, um, and it all comes into a very good blend. They also produce something which is interesting. It's called a frizzante, uh, which I suppose is a little bit like our cava, which I know that it's very, very popular with the locals. Um, again, I think you'd have to be there to actually drink it to enjoy it. Uh, I don't think it's going to travel too well. That, that's really interesting for such a small little place. You know, it's, it's really not a big island. You look at it on a map and it is puny. You almost got to look twice to know that they're talking about Malta because you, it's really difficult to see sometimes. It's, it's so small. But from that little place, you've got big, bold reds, Bordeaux-style Cabernet Sauvignon Merlot, and you've got these crisp, refreshing whites. And really, that's, that's such a cool contrast to have, especially in a, in a, in a warm place. That's right. Um- when you think as well about the place and how they've cultivated their grapes, which is very similar to some parts in, in Europe where they, they have this terraced kind of bush vine. So it's not so much all your trellising. It's quite a natural um, process in, in viticulture. They don't irrigate. Most of them don't irrigate. So those, those vines dig down deep. Um, and like I said, it's, it's um, an alkaline. And, yeah, you're just... Uh, you know, with this warm sort of humid climate, you're producing some excellent, excellent wines. They do. Um, I think Shannon Blanc does pretty well there as well. We've spoken previously, I think, about uh, Vermentino thriving. But a, a lot of, you look historically, there's a lot of different European influences on Malta. There's, there's French, Sicilian, by expansion, Italian and you've got a lot of the different varietals from these cultures coming in. And I think you'd almost think the 
the winemakers or the producers on Malta are sort of taking a, you know, it's a bit of a trial, trial and error approach as, as you do anywhere, but you've got this really particular geographical location, which gives you a very interesting terroir. So I can j- just imagine them trying, you know, trial and error with all these different varieties. Some work, others don't. Um, I guess there's this big revival they've had in the last hundred years, though. You know, they're still only exporting about a quarter of what they produce. I think they produce something like three million bottles a year. I don't know. Did you? No. Look, I don't know about that. Yeah. I, I don't that know, but it's, been, it's interesting. Yeah. I was thinking about that 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 link that you sent me uh, about that vineyard called, is it Marsavin? Marsavin, yeah. So that's, that's the really cool one where they produce the, the consecutive vintages. There's this particular label that they've got. I'm, I'm not sure what wine it is it's actually produced, but on, on each vintage, there's a different insignia imprinted on the bottle of each of the different grand masters. So it's like a collector's item. And there are, there are some people that try and collect all the different vintages. I think it started in, heck, it could have, could, could have been the late 90s, but now there'd be 20 different vintages. It's like you've got to collect them all and have all the different Knights, insignias, uh, just just groovy. So so much history, especially because you got the three generations there. Well, you got the father and the grandfather. You got an uncle, but then there, mm. I guess the son will take over. And it's really nice to see that. But with the regards to the the wine, they they're still practicing the old traditional methods. It's all hand picked, um, and it's a sort of sort of place you, you could just sort of hang out all day, wine tasting you know, going through the whole, um, all their vineyards and, and just the, the actual buildings, the structures that they have. In fact, one of the vineyards, if I remember rightly, actually where they have the winery is one of the old hospitalers where the Templars, it's actually a castle because there's one of three castles there, which I think is pretty cool. Mm. And um, yeah, just going back on the, on the historical side of things, I was just thinking about the catacombs because obviously there was a Christian persecution and you've got there St. Paul, who obviously founded Christianity in around 60 AD. He was shipwrecked there, wasn't he? And um, I think what? even they say St. Luke was, was painted a picture of the Madonna. Um, I just think how I imagine, you know, being there and drinking wine and looking at the grottos and being where all those, those Catholics were, it's just, just incredible. And to, to me, that's the funnest part about wine because people go, how, how can you be so interested in, you know, a liquid in a bottle? And that, that's not it. You're not interested in the, the liquid in the bottle. You're interested in the genie in the bottle. You know, this, this explosion of, you know, it's art, it's history, it's culture, it's environment, it's, you know, the French call it terroir. It's, yeah. it's just the ultimate cultural experience. Well, it has soul, right? Each place, whatever you put into it, you get something back out. And with, with, it's not just a bottle of wine. It's the true elixir of life. I mean, <laughs> you know, St. Paul would be drinking it, I guess. Uh, <laughs> and everyone else. I mean, Knights of Malta, as we know, because uh, of the Templars here, we know that they drank heaps and heaps of wine. But one other aspect of um, that's kind of interesting about Malta is they have apparently 365 churches. So it's basically like one for every day of the year. How cool is that? That is a lot of churches squeezed into a relatively small <laughs> island. <laughs> yeah. Cool. And then they got the, and then you got all the archaeology so you can go and visit so many things. So, like you were talking about the temple builders, they were called before the Phoenicians were there. And then you've got 
Oh, just like the, the 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 battles that they've had there and the garrisons that they must have. I mean, it must be incredibly interesting to go and visit that. What a history for such a small little place. I mean, it's it's you know at, at the crossroads of thousands of different civilizations over thousands of years of history. A lot of a lot of foot traffic over that very little island, but but actually, not as much as it could have been if they hadn't, you know, repelled a lot of invasions along the way. But j- just for the benefit of the listeners, and we mentioned this before, there was the, the, the video for the, the Marsaven winery. So they're a big wine estate in Malta and they were celebrating 100 years and they released this, I think it's about a half an hour documentary that talks about the, the history of the family and the family winery. And I, I sent it to you before we did this and you were able to have a watch and I'm going to post the link in the, the, the link to the video, but it's, it's so worth watching because the scenery it, it's, it's wine encapsulated. It's beautiful scenery. It's history of Malta. It's culture. It's religion. And it's all done through the wine. So uh, I, I'm, I'm going to put that link there and I'd really encourage anybody who has made it this far um, to, to just click it and have a listen. I think it's a nice round off. Um, I really enjoyed watching that video. I definitely highly recommend it as well. And the music that they've used has happened to be one of my favourite pieces from the Tales of Hoffman opera. Um, so yeah, I definitely, yeah, sit back with a glass of wine and watch it. I think you'll enjoy it. Well, on that note, I think we should both do the same thing. So I'm, I'm going to go get a <laughs> glass of, I don't know, it may not be Shannon Blanc or Vermentino, but the, uh, the crispest, freshest thing I can find. And I'm going to invite you to do the same. <laughs> Look, I'd like to. I really, really would. It's the a bit early on your right end. Now, it's a bit early, but what I have to do right now is I'm doing my counting of grapes to see what sort of um, tonnage I'm going to get. It won't be a ton, but I'm just pretending that it will be. So I'll go and taste a few grapes and uh, that'll be my uh, alcohol intake. Can you give us a, a two-minute update on how the, the little vineyard is going where you are? I wish I could say it was going really well. Um, unfortunately, due to a lot of the fire, the fire that there were and the fact that it hadn't been um, pruned in such a long time, we've also had a lot of sun, which has given a lot of sun stress and sort of sunspots to some of the grapes that have re- have actually grown so far. So I'm a little bit worried about this. They're kind of like a little bit sunburnt, let's just say. Um, I'm hoping it won't affect the, the flavour of grapes. Who knows? Maybe it'll give it a caramelly kind of taste to my wine. Is hoping. Well, if it is a caramelly kind of taste, I'd, I'd just put a request in for one of those, you know, unique limited edition bottles. Just make sure, it you know, it's, it's got my name on it. <laughs> okay, Tom, I will do that for you. <laughs> Thanks. Awesome, Tim. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Great to talk to you again. Bye Always for now. is. Let's do it again soon.